Hello listeners, welcome back to Creative Health Podcast, your fix for all things art, culture and creativity, supporting all things health and well-being. I'm your host, Laura Bailey. For this episode, I chatted with the lovely Daniel Fulvio, who is currently Deputy Director of Audiences for Community at Rombear Contemporary Dance Company, where he leads the Learning and Participation Programme. Prior to Rombear, Daniel's roles have included leading the participation programme at Camden People's Theatre and as a producer of innovative new queer performance projects with Opening Doors London and The Albany. He's also been an award-winning journalist, featured in The Guardian and The Times, and he was deputy editor of Attitude magazine. Along with his current work, we discussed where his creative and supportive nature comes from and the importance of dance and creativity in the queer community to enable a sense of belonging and self-expression. Daniel touches on bullying and grief, so please read the show notes for more information before listening if you might find this triggering. Daniel is warm-hearted, sensitive and super motivated to create safe spaces for others to flourish. Enjoy. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to Creative Health Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. You're so very welcome. It's really good to see you here today. You're Work over the last 10 years has been about creating spaces for participation engagement in arts and culture, and particularly for marginalised communities or those that don't have access to or don't usually access the arts. Where did this interest come from? And did you have access to cultural opportunities as a young person yourself? This is such a good question because it's it's making me sort of really think about this in a way that I hadn't really so so thank you for giving me the space to do that because it's really helpful for me to think about that and I feel like I feel like art and culture saved me when I was growing up like I come from working class background in in Salisbury in Wiltshire and um, I was chatting to my best friend who I'm still best friends with we've been best friends since we were in year eight and we used to basically escape bullying at school like during lunch times and breaks by putting on shows you know we found like an empty classroom or the theatre studio in in the secondary school we went to school and we would put on variety shows like which had like musical numbers and you know comedy and we'd enroll lots of other young people in that and it was a way of my friend has a theory that it it was one way of sort of escaping sort of a lot of stress of like bullying that was going on at at that time but it was also just a really lovely creative outlet and so it really did save me and I think it was just a really I didn't recognize it at the time because I don't think I had the terminology or the exact accrued knowledge at that point but it was a, a brilliant outlet for my mental health and the sort of stresses and strains that were going on so that was one thing that we did, but it was very sort of self-motivated. It's interesting because I was sort of reflecting on this with my friend and we, we did it very much by ourselves. We sort of put on shows at the end of Christmas and for prize giving and, and we kind of galvanized a lot of other like-minded souls in the school, but it's very much driven by us. I'd love to say it was a teacher that supported us, 
but they just kind of gave us space to do it like a classroom and you know or would let us sort of round up everyone at the end of the year but it was very much kind of motivated from me and my friends and and then other young people who are interested so I think I think it was recognizing that it actually really saved me and then the other thing that I did was that it's a really useful thing to think about because I think the other thing is that I'm I sort of dreamed of being a pop star when I was young. I think being a queer kid in a town that didn't feel like I had much to do in the mid-90s, I sort of dreamed of, yeah, being a pop star. And so I joined the Southern School of Popular Singing, which I think still exists. I was doing some Googling and we would perform in in the town hall at Christmas and do lots of pop songs. And you'd have to sort of pay a subscription to be part of it. But it was... It was another sort of outlet for me, I think. Art and culture was a form of escape as well as it saving me. So it's sort of unusual access to it, but but that's what sort of happened. Well, I mean, it may not be as unusual as you think, actually. I definitely think that a lot of young people who maybe don't feel like they fit in to the normal, quote unquote, ways of behaving that is expected in schools and even sometimes in your families or in the community that that opportunity to be creative like you say does save people and creates a space where you can be yourself is that what you got out of it yeah absolutely absolutely and find a sense of community with other people who get something from that it was exactly that yeah it was exactly that I mean that you know obviously I'm sorry that you experienced bullying as a young person and nobody should have to put up with that but I'm also you know it's so good to hear that you found that space and that outlet for your creativity and that that gave you strength and confidence presumably to you know, to be able to be yourself and to go on and do the things that you want to do in life. Absolutely. Yes, that's absolutely what happened. Definitely. And was there a turning point somewhere that, well, made you want to pursue creativity as a career, but also, because we're going to come on to talk about the way that you've been working over the years and the things that you've been doing. And a lot of that is about supporting other people so was there a point at which you wanted to use creativity to help other people like it helped you yeah absolutely um so it's, it's talking about a sensitive thing but I'm I'm very I feel very safe to talk about it so um so it's, it's a sensitive issue um it was it was the death of my brother um my, my brother um sadly took his life when he was age 22 and I was um, 26 at the time and I was a journalist working in London for Heat magazine of all places and um, it really it came as a very very big shock understandably to to myself and my family and Stephen's friends that was the name of my brother because we weren't aware of any mental health issues there were no apparent sort of mental health issues and I think trying to make sense I was trying to make sense of it at that moment in the sort of very raw aftermath of what happened while still grieving and I I think I thought a positive thing that I could do in quite a turbulent moment was to draw upon the connections that I'd made as a journalist through people that I'd worked with or met 
to try and raise awareness about the sort of really shocking statistic at the time of suicide being the highest highest incidence for death in young men, which I wasn't aware of until obviously this awful tragedy had befallen me and my family. So I set about bringing together friends of mine who worked in the music industry at the time and advertising a sort of broad coalition of people. And we created a campaign called Wasted Youth, which was about sort of raising awareness of this and culminated in a gig in Pentonville Prison that was headlined by um, Dirty Pretty Things, which were a prominent indie band at the time. And then that was a, um, a sort of curtain raiser for a bigger gig that was for the public in Coco, headlined by Calvin Harris, who was sort of still quite emergent. He was not as big as he is now, but it was to sort of draw attention to and raise awareness. And um, I think it was a success of that campaign and recognizing that I could perhaps use my skills in different ways that sort of this sort of led me on the path that I'm on now. So I went back to university as a mature student at the age of 30. And then I guess reignited my love that I talked about at the very beginning of this chat with drama and creating spaces for people to be creative and in using performance that sort of reignited that love and then sort of set me on the course that I'm on now. Wow. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. I know that's probably really hard to talk about and I'm really sorry for the loss of Steve and for you and your family. You You know, I can't offer you any condolences that are going to make that feel better for you, but it sounds like you used your own self-motivation and your creativity to kind of channel out a way for you to use that really tragic situation turning it into something positive and which is really amazing and you should be really proud of that thank you Laura yeah thank you thank you for giving me the space to talk about that yeah it's just kind of an honest account of what happened and I guess what sort of set me on on this path really yeah yeah and you've you've taken your own personal lived experience and using it in your professional life for yourself and your career, but also for the benefit of others, which is amazing. And I want to pick up on this aspect of your career because you've been, and you can tell me the journey of sort of, you know, what happened next, but I know that you've spent a lot of time working in what we would call participatory arts with different communities. So particularly the LGBTQ plus or queer community, in making, for example, dance more accessible for everybody and particularly young people. So let's start off with that. And I'd love it if you could share some stories from your work about why it matters that there are spaces and opportunities for the queer community in particular as a marginalised group or often marginalised group historically. Why does arts and culture matter in working with specific communities like that for a range of reasons i think one thing is just one reason is just this idea of taking up space and sort of having um safe spaces with which to do it i think what sort of ignited my love of participation work is through my theater work that i rediscovered once i kind of 
emerged as a, after being a mature student, I set up a theatre company with my then partner, Martin, and we were fortunate enough to get Arts Council funding on some projects. And, and that allowed us to sort of really enshrine those spaces for queer people. One project that springs to mind is um, we did a trans retelling of the Duchess of Malfi, where we refashioned the Duchess as a trans heroine navigating 1950s un- queer underworld and the sort of challenges of that. But the really beautiful participation event that we created was a drag ball where we took over all of Bethnal Green Working Men's Club and um, invited queer communities from East London to walk, which is like in the tradition of um, ballroom culture, where it's about sort of taking up space, assuming identities as a form of empowerment, using your own identity as as a form of empowerment. And I think that's just really important to sort of just the simple fact of bringing queer people together to take up space, to be confident and just have some fun. Another sort of project that springs to mind is um, some work that I did at the Albany, which was um, creating a theatre show about the importance of queer friendship. And um, the participation aspect of that was sort of creating a really just inclusive dance space and sort of really enshrining the importance of clubbing for queer people in an emotional like spiritual and psychological way it's a way of releasing it's a form of communion it's a way of exchanging ideas with like-minded souls it's um it's sort of like a really important thing <laughs> another beautiful project that we did and then I guess the other thing sorry I'm probably giving so many different examples but like is it... no please <laughs> carry on it's brilliant is um is during lockdown well during the first onslaught of covid with my then partner at the time, Martin, fortunately, with the support of the Arts Council, we set up a digital drama group for queer elders, which was very eventful. It was, I think I'd only used Zoom twice at that stage. It was still a novel concept. It was connected to a lot of queer elders just, just through my work at Camden People's Theatre and community engagement there and just through various projects and just and so I was literally phoning around all the queer elders that were in my communities and networks and and helping them install Zoom. And the first few sessions were incredibly rough, like very, you know, like everyone trying to get to grips with it. But it grew and it became like an actual like nationwide project where um, with some support from the Arts Council, I was able to sort of work with, I think I must have emailed every single LGBTQ group that I could find in the UK. And we had this beautiful, very diverse group that would Zoom in every fortnight. And we created a live stream that used sort of monologue and song. And um, it was it was really special. So I'm getting quite, I'm getting quite touched just remembering Aww. it all. But it's very, yeah, it's it just... It sounds a, wonderful. Yeah, it's very special. Yeah. Yeah, really yeah. amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of those things because you know, that's all really amazing work and you really articulated the importance of why it's important to provide these spaces. I want to pick up on this thing that you mentioned about the importance of clubbing for the queer community. Yes. Because Something similar came up in a conversation I had with another interviewee about how we were talking about, you know, the importance of everyday creativity. And she said something about how actually like clubs 
and dance halls or that kind of thing are like a health space like they are an arts and health space for people who love dancing and clubbing and music and they're actually going there and like you said releasing it's like a communion you said exchanging ideas being yourself like doing that and having that release and that sense of community is so good for your health and well-being and so I love that this idea that that is sort of like a health center in a in a strange kind of way isn't it Absolutely. It's so important. It's a place of connection. And my friend Ben Walters, who's this brilliant, um, yes. who's done lots of work with Ducky, the incredible queer South London-based participation organisation. He's he's called Dr. Ducky because he did a PhD on Ducky and he's done just lots of amazing participatory work himself. The Badge Cafe is definitely something to check out. It's incredible okay. um, that he does. But um, But he talks about like, taking fun seriously and one of those ways that queer people do is in nightlife and in clubbing like it allows you to assume different identities to exchange radical ideas to have a sense of communion and and it's it's incredibly important obviously it's kind of deprioritized a lot within sort of mainstream culture but I love the idea of it being a health center because that's a really wonderful way of I'm going to use that in the future. Exactly. Yeah, because it's exactly that. It's it's all of those things. It's all of those things. I mean, I don't want, I'm not trying to medicalize or clinicalize. That's probably not even a word, but I'm going to use it anyway. A dance space, a club, and the idea of clubbing. But, you know, the whole point of this podcast is about how participating and engaging in creativity in its broadest sense is really good for our health and well-being. So in that sense, those places and spaces that you find joy and happiness and connection, that is a place you go to for the benefit of your health. You might not think about it in that way. And most people probably don't think about it in that way. You know, they're just going for a great night out with their mates, where they get to be themselves, they get to dress up, they get to be exuberant and express themselves. But actually, those things make us feel really good and can help support a good quality of life and a good sense of self and self-esteem and all of those things and so this is amazing like these are the kinds of messages that I want to share with people that I know along with clubbing come other things like taking drugs and alcohol and those things can be the opposite and we're not here to debate the whys and wherefores of of taking drugs but actually all of those other things that we've just discussed, I think, is really incredibly important to understand. And in actual fact, you know, post-COVID, we know lots of clubs shut down, didn't they? Yeah, yes. And lots of people lost those spaces. I mean, we all lost going out anyway during COVID. And so it's amazing yes. that you were doing things online at the time. But but actually, lots of those really sacred spaces for people shut down, you know, and haven't reopened. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Like I haven't got the exact figures, but queer spaces are vanishing. Certainly within London, that's one of the awful effects of sort of turbo gentrification and and the difficulty of finding these spaces. 
So it is under threat, definitely, that having access to those spaces to actually have that is definitely, um, yeah, like a, a continual sort of pressure, like particularly in London. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, new ones will emerge. We've, we're very inventive and we... we th- I'm making obviously huge generalizations for the whole queer community, but like, but many queer people are very inventive and, and can find interesting places to sort of make those things happen. So yeah, we're very inventive and resilient. And resourceful. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think the creative community as a whole is as well. We all have an ability, I think, to kind of make stuff happen with limited resources and in unusual spaces because we need it, we need to engage with it. Let's move on to your current role. So you are Deputy Director of Audiences, brackets community, you can explain that in a moment, (laughs) at Rombert, which is a leading contemporary dance company. And I want to get on to the work that you're doing in Manchester and other northern towns and cities. But first of all, tell us about Rombert as an organisation. What's its purpose and its mission? Well, that's that's a great question because we're very, very, very mission-driven and mission-led. So our mission is, our cause is, what if there was a dance company where brilliant and daring people could show up and be supported to push themselves to move the world forward. And it really does inform everything we do in a very sort of meaningful way. So like when you watch a Rombest show and you can kind of see incredible feats of athleticism from our dancers, it's obviously incredibly inspiring and they are doing that. They're enacting our cause, but also with the participation work that I've been developing, all of it, to some degree requires some sort of degree of bravery I think but also crucially about creating those conditions in which people can feel brave to do that so that might be getting out of your comfort zone and taking a movement class or it could be being introduced to sort of really interesting artists in a youth program that are going to kind of really stretch your creativity so that's sort of like the basis of our cause and it's and it's sort of the launch point for everything that we do how old is the organization so we're going to be celebrating our centenary oh, in wow. 2026 okay which is very exciting because we've been a dance company that's existed for 100 years we've got a lot of repertoire that exists and a lot of sort of history We've got a full-time archivist who is sort of engaged with that. We're in the heart of GCSE and A-level dance education and quite often talking to people. Many people have never heard us and that's brilliant because that's an opportunity to hopefully introduce them to contemporary dance in some way. But then there's also a contingent of people that will always sort of say, I remember the first time I saw you in 1970 and, you know, Swindon, etc 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 so we've got this sort of interesting polarity yeah but I think the main thing is that we've really been experimenting doing new things sort of since the pandemic which is really exciting to sort of have the freedom to sort of test new ways of engaging 
Yeah, that sounds really exciting. And I wanted to ask you, because sometimes professional contemporary dance can be perceived as quite elitist and not accessible or affordable for most people. Mm. Is Romba concerned about this? And what is it doing to address that? So we are very concerned about that, definitely. And I think... I mentioned a moment ago about like how many people that we encounter have never heard of Rombert and sometimes have had very little sort of engagement with contemporary dance. And I think they are, they're the communities that we focus on, that I focus on with the work that, that we do really. I think contemporary dance is definitely, can definitely have those sort of negative inbuilt assumptions about elitism, but there's also a real power to dance that everyone has access to it. And I think that's what we really focus on with the work that we do. So for example, with our Feel This Free Festival, we open up the building in South Bank, which is where our main HQ is, and um, have this like, really broad, diverse range of dance artists who, who, who we work with and just encourage the community to take up space and and feel free and then I guess another thing which would be good to talk in more detail about is the idea of bringing dance to early years children in settings across nurseries sort of introducing them to contemporary dance before they're even at school and I think the other thing that would be that hopefully better talk in a little bit more detail about is the idea that um that some of our youth work is deconstructing what it means to be a dance company or an arts organisation because our artistic director likes to say that dance is more than dance and I think there's a real truth to that in the sense that um, there's so many interesting pathways into creative careers and ways of being creative that are beyond just dance and by sort of opening up what an organisation is and all the different components of it and allowing young people to have access to that. That's um, another really powerful way that we're engaging with young people. So with our sort of flagship youth programme, I think overwhelmingly all the young people had not heard of Romba at all. And and now they've all seen Peaky Blinders, which is our most recent dance show. So it's sort of, so I think those are some of the ways that we're doing it. Yeah. And so we know that um, we, we will, we're gonna come back onto some of the earlier work that you've been doing. Yeah, But just more on dance in general, because I guess we all know everybody could probably articulate how dance is a physical creative activity. So it's about movement of the body and therefore it supports your health in that way. But I guess for people who, you know, maybe haven't thought about it in this way before, tell us in what other ways dance supports your health and well-being? It brings people together and it can bring people from different communities together in a really like powerful way that transcends language and culture. But also like, I guess conversely, it also helps us to like learn about culture in like a really embodied way. So for example, with our the outdoor street festival that we have 
we have JJ Revlon, who is from the House of Revlon, encouraging participants to do femme voguing workshop and talking about the history of where this comes from, from sort of, you know, oppressed queer people of colour taking up space and and assuming identities and using their non-normative ways as, as a form of celebration. So it's sort of, or just yesterday I was sort of in a community hall really close to where we, really close to Rumba, where there's some, some amazing work going on with Lindy Hop and Jazz and the UK scene that's just so incredible and working with some sort of incredible dancers there and just sort of learning about that culture. So it's sort of sort of a way of really learning about other cultures in a really embodied way that can quite often transcend language. It's a really, it's a really powerful, like... Yeah, it's quite unique in that way, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Oh, this is all so exciting. I love it. I, I mean, I actually didn't tell you at the beginning. I mean, I love contemporary dance. I love dance of all types but and I've done I used to do Lindy Hop classes which is I guess not necessarily what you'd call contemporary dance but I absolutely love it I'm absolutely terrible however because I don't know my left from right and I'm really uncoordinated but I love it anyway we have kitchen discos in my house and it just makes me feel so happy to dance to music yeah so I think that's a message for people as well, isn't it? That don't be afraid. You don't think you're any good or... Exactly. You know, you're a bit uncoordinated because if you just want to freestyle it and throw your arms in the air, then that counts and that's as valid as learning whatever kind of more structured dance, formal dance. Exactly, exactly. Just before we move on to um, some of the specific projects at the moment, does... Romba have a specific focus on health and well-being as an organization both in terms of I guess the community work but also for its dancers and its staff what's going on there yeah so our early years program of work is very much sort of rooted in health and well-being in a in a sort of really exciting and innovative way but sort of going more deeper into us as an organisation in terms of what we do for well-being for our staff and dancers, that's a good question. I think with the dancers, it's very much um, enshrined in their um, in their sort of working life. Yoga and Pilates is a sort of a regular part of their practice. And there's a lot of pastoral care that's really embedded in the day-to-day structure of our dancers, which is good. I think the other thing is that a lovely thing that is that all the staff at Rombear, our freelance staff, all have completely free access to dance and to yoga and um, Pilates. In South Bank, we have daily classes that take place directly after work for all different levels of dance and a sort of really broad range of dance styles k-pop contemporary disco uh like and um and that's all completely free and available for us to access so it's a sort of really lovely way of being able to to sort of key into that creativity and yeah sort of come together yeah and that, i mean the reason i'm asking you i guess is because maybe there's a perception that in certain 
sectors, maybe like ballet and things like that, that dancers are pushed really, really hard. And, you know, obviously they want to be the best that they can be, but that maybe there is a another side to that, which is not so good for their mental health and well-being, that it is, it's so disciplined and you know, they are pushed to the limits with their bodies. Mm. That a lot of the time we're sort of having these conversations about dance supporting the health and well-being of communities and that being really great, but actually we sort of forget to talk about the creative professionals themselves and that actually their well-being is as important that that is supported. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I set up some learning hubs which was examining some historic repertoire that's on the syllabus and bringing in alternative expertise as a way of like looking at how we can look at these works in in within a contemporary lens and we invited some former dancers within that space and that's definitely something that has come up within the past not necessarily always working at Rombeb but their experiences of being a dancer how historically a dancer's body is something that's sort of which a choreographer put something onto them in terms of choreography. I think there's really positive strides that have been made at Rombo in the sense that um, I was talking to someone about this yesterday when I was up in Rochdale at a youth engagement session. I was talking to a dance lead there who was sort of commenting about how when she recently saw Peaky Blinders, our sort of most recent big show at the Lowry, she could see that the, the dancers were really sort of individuated in the show and how their personalities and their and their lived experience was sort of really front and center in the performances and in the way that they were telling that story and she reflected on the difference between that and previous works that she's seen in other companies where they are very much a sea of the same bodies or like the ballet core which is all quite often young women who all have to look exactly the same way so it's definitely a thing and it's come up with with our dancers as well we created this these tv programs with young people they got to interview our dancers the show that was on female empowerment which the Rochdale young group did where they interviewed two of our dancers Saren and Ashwarya they talked about a lot of that damaging stuff particularly around body and um an image that can kind of be within, particularly within the ballet world and ballet school and how a lot of our dancers have had to sort of work through some of that, like, um, yeah, work through some of those sort of really unhealthy, damaging things that can sort of come up within training. Oh, thank you for that, Daniel. That's really interesting to understand. Let's move on to talk about your work in Manchester and a number of other northern cities. And I know that you are working with Julie McCarthy in Greater Manchester Combined Authority. And that is the first region ever to develop a creative health strategy. So tell us about that work. How did it come about? And who are you working with, as well as Julie? And what are the aims of that programme? Yes. So, well, Julie's brilliant. And that basically came about through a chance encounter in the auditorium of Peaky Blinders during the interval 
which is our big dance show I've mentioned, that was at, at the Lowry and Julie was there. And um, through a mutual contact, she was like, we should work together. And I was like, yes, we should. Absolutely. And it's been a really, it's been just a very good partnership of honesty and um, and working out how we can support each other and being just very open about what we can do. And so basically through meetings with, with Julie, she talked about the creative health strategy and um, particularly talked about one of the focuses being in early years. There's a crisis in the early years sector that's zooming out on sort of two sort of fundamental ways. One is um, that the the sector is feeling quite beleaguered and um, morale is quite low and there's um, sort of issues around that. There's sort of, sort of a huge amount of pressures on the sector and that's one aspect of it. The second is um, that the gross motor skills of early years children in Greater Manchester are in many cases not of the required level in order to sort of really help with their development as they progress through school. And so the combined authority is still trying to sort of work out what the factors are beyond just the sort of sustained impact of lockdowns. But if your gross motor skills, which essentially require your whole body movement to sort of perform everyday functions, if those are not of a good standard, it also affects your fine motor skills, like your ability to hold a pen. And so this obviously is alarming. And it's also they've noticed it's particularly bad with boys as well. So we're at the very, very beginning of a project, which is really, really exciting, where we're training 12 earliest practitioners not across the whole um, 10 boroughs, but across several of the boroughs of, of Greater Manchester. They've already had two half days training from us in how to confidently deliver contemporary dance within these nursery settings. And we're still very, very much at the beginning of this, but me and my team are going to basically go on this journey over the next year with these earliest practitioners where we're going to support them with embedding contemporary dance in these nursery settings and it's very exciting we're going to have our first visits a fortnight from now where we'll be going to these nursery settings to sort of see how it's working in with our practitioners we're going to have a movement workshop with all the practitioners with one of our rombed dancers they're going to engage with our work when Peaky Blinders comes back to Larry in November. And um, we're going to sort of just track their well-being and also track the physical development of the young people through this programme. So it's all very exciting. It's sort of a really interesting way of working in partnership. It's also been quite data-driven, which is really interesting because it's working with the combined authority has sort of allowed us as an arts organisation to have access to school readiness data, which is found through sort of a range of factors, gross motor skills being one of those, and then sort of look at how we can best sort of use our resources and then take a sort of data-driven approach to it. So it's been, yeah, just a really interesting project where we're going to learn lots, the practitioners in the nursery settings are going to learn lots, and um, hopefully see see what difference we can make. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting, Daniel, and like, you know, just actually the sort of stark facts of these gross motor skills, especially in boys, 
not being where they should be you know that's obviously not good at all but it's you know it's interesting isn't it and why is that is that because young people are just sitting around being stationary and stagnant and playing computer games for too long and they're not using their bodies in the way that they should be in order for them to develop properly so I'm really looking forward to watching this all unfold and to see what the results are and where that goes and how you can maybe roll that out into other areas. Have you got plans to do that already? Yeah, I mean, we're still very much at the beginning of this pilot and we're learning so much. Like it's quite a big ask to ask these nursery practitioners to embed it in their settings and and we're going to I think we're going to have a lot of information during our first in-person visits so we're learning loads about how we can best support them to do this but yeah I think it is an ambition to to roll it out more intensively across all the 10 boroughs of Greater Manchester and um, you know maybe even beyond that we've sort of worked properly creating a sort of an evaluation framework with the combined authority to sort of really track the progress of it and so yeah hopefully that's definitely an ambition of Rombez and the combined authority is definitely yeah part of the challenge I think is that because you mentioned about training for early years practitioners but they're not professional dancers are they or movement specialists And I think that that's a challenge that comes up in lots of projects where we're bringing health and creativity together. The creative practitioners are not health specialists and the health specialists or the teachers or early years practitioners in your case are not trained creative professionals either. So how do you make sure that they can deliver a really good session that is genuine professional doesn't cause more harm than less if you know what I mean how do you make sure that they really have the skills to deliver those sessions yeah that's really good it's about intensively resourcing it so we're enshrining the fact that we have regular contact with them we have a special Rombert whatsapp where we're sort of in continual communication with them but we also have a process of coming together every month where myself and or a member of my team are going to co-deliver sessions with them, troubleshoot, support them, but also bring everyone together as well, where we can kind of learn together and share best practice. And then also bring Rombed dance artists back into that space on a monthly basis and see how we can really support, train, troubleshoot and see how we can go on this journey all together to do that I think we're going to learn loads about how we can best do that but it's through actually really resourcing it so that they actually have some intense one-to-one time with the Rombe team and kind of having a bespoke way of supporting each person according to that level of support that they might need yeah thank you it is really interesting and like you say it's kind of just action learning isn't it yes yeah yeah. And and you touched on the intensive resourcing there and I wanted to ask you about that because the ambition for us all I think is for there to be many many more opportunities for everyone no matter what their circumstances and and where they live to have access to creative opportunities but it's a funding issue I guess more than anything else. What are your thoughts on how 
you know, sustained opportunities might happen? I think it's really important that um, that there is that level of either sustained work or legacy. And the work that I've been doing at Romba, I've been trying to enshrine that as much as possible. So, for example, with the Future Movement Programme, which is our Youth Voice Programme, it's weekly. And we've set up these Youth Voice Programmes in hubs in London and in Mansfield and in Rochdale, which are obviously levelling up for culture places. And it's just been that showing up every week and building trust really having high impact it's quite low scale but high impact work where we're working with sort of a small group of young people but I guess it's doing it week in week out and that's really really important because then you can just really understand how to support those communities and also work in a sort of really genuine place-based way as well where you're kind of working with the local arts ecology supporting the young people and then um, really doing quite sort of deep work. So I think it is important. I think it's always a shame. And I understand there's sort of this pressures on resources where sort of you can kind of create that work and then it can disappear. But yeah, I think it's it's really important that it's protected as much as possible. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with everything that you've just said and that approach. I guess my question, not necessarily to you directly, but sort of in general to, to everybody is like, how do you sustain that kind of intensive work that has impact and longevity your funding at Romba presumably comes from arts council and some partnership funding from maybe local authorities yes public health I don't know you know a a variety of sources but yes you know there isn't enough funding at the moment for what we are calling creative health opportunities And so it's not something that we can answer fully here, but I think that is a big question for everybody working in this field is that in order to do this work and for people to benefit, there needs to be more sustained funding for it from a range of sources. Absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, Because we have the evidence of just like the impact that it's creating, but it's such a shame that there's such fragility around so much of this work, definitely. Yeah, so I'm down to my last couple of questions now Daniel and in my research I read that you've been described as someone who creates authentic partnerships for change who brings about the best in others has sensitivity and positivity and genuinely listens and I have experienced this in our short time together today and I know sometimes it can be really hard to retain these qualities when we're all under pressure and you know we've all got huge workloads and we've got other things going on in our lives but you seem to be somebody who just manages to show up in your work and have that really engaging positive just amazingly lovely vibe how do you (laughs) how do you do that (laughs) tell us the secret Thank you so much. Thank you. That's a, such a thank. Um, that's a lot. That's a really, really lovely question. Really lovely. I'm gonna, I don't want to start, gonna start crying again. Oh. But um, I, do you know what? I I love this question, and I learned a lot from my boyfriend Miles, who's this like wonderful psychologist at 
Bristol Uni, a lot of his work is on well-being and he's just really taught me about like prioritizing well-being and prioritizing my own well-being and um, I've just sort of really learned that from him. I do it through a range of ways. I do, I guess I do it through engaging with culture and through podcasts like I, I really I really love this podcast oh thank you in particular like I really it gives me a lot of comfort and I've learned a lot listening to it a lot so I guess I've just I've really tried to identify what gives me energy and identify what takes away my energy like you know doom scrolling and um and not exercising and not seeing my friends. And I just really try and focus on what gives me energy and really prioritize my well-being and recognize that it's actually it's actually a political act because it allows you to carry on with the work, which I which I sometimes feel is like activism, some of the work that I do. And yeah, 100%. And it just encourages you to sort of carry on doing that work and avoid burnout. So that's what I do I think I just I've like identified the things that give me energy and I've and I just try and prioritize those on a daily basis so what are they what's your thing what do you love doing oh like um so dancing of course like I like to go out I like to go out on a like periodic rave (laughs) with my friends (laughs) listening to podcasts going to the gym like I'm really really important about sort of protecting that and just really silly little things like just going oh it sounds so cheesy just going to like my local coffee shop and just having that human interaction there's nothing <laughs> just, cheesy about that do you know what it, with that person yeah yes having that human interaction and then their face will like be really happy and then my and I'll just take that energy back Aww. and the final 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 thing I think it's just like getting involved in the activity like when you get a bit more I don't know like just going to sessions and meeting the young people and just really trying to remember why it is (laughs) we do the work that we do why it is we do it and then that kind of diffuses my anxiety and gives me energy as well Uh, is that that yeah it's feeding you yeah yeah oh Daniel thank you so much I've loved every minute of it I think you are such a brilliant positive vibey person and I would really uh, fill my cup up sitting in a coffee shop with you I think so I just want to say thank you for being a guest on creative health podcast thank you very much I've loved it and um, it's a real it's genuinely a real privilege to to be part of it because you're creating a really special space. I'm sure it's supporting a lot of people. It's definitely supporting me listening to it. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please rate, review and subscribe. Follow the show on Instagram at creativehealthpod and via the website creative-health.co.uk. This episode was edited by Penny Bell. Creative Health Podcast has been supported through Kent County Council's Arts Investment Fund.